This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What? is Crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you without my co-host Adam Frommel. Back by popular demand, though, at least between my ears, is good friend and colleague, Bleacher Report's NBA national writer, Grant Hughes. Follow him on Twitter, at GT underscore Hughes. We're going to get into some midseason factor fictions that Grant is coming in blind to. I'll get into more of that in a minute. But just as a brief, quick, and important reminder... Please, 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 please continue rating and reviewing and subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. Search Hardware Knocks on iTunes. Throw us that five-star rating. What, write whatever you want in the reviews. It helps us out a ton. And definitely subscribe and download all of our episodes wherever you're consuming our podcast. iTunes, help us juice those numbers whether you use it or not. But wherever you get your podcast, make sure you're subscribed and downloading every episode. And word of mouth, pass it along. Tell people, friends, family, acquaintances, random people on the internet that this podcast is at least pleasantly mediocre or sub mediocre. Let's call it. Let's not set the bar too high. With all of that out of the way, though, Grant, how are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm kind of nervous because uh, you offered to send me. Uh, you know, normally we will discuss a little bit before uh, we record these what we're going to talk about, and I I uh, recklessly declined this time, and uh, so. I'm just waiting to look foolish and uneducated, and well, also bonus for you, you're going to look really smart by comparison. So, but I, I did this to myself. When so I, I gave I, you the pitch for this podcast, I said, "Look, we can go into all star rosters," but then you could tell by the number of words I used, where I said, "Why don't we just do fact or fiction where you come in blind?" That I didn't really want to do all star rosters, um, in large the, part because I'm not into there being a game at all, but also the. The conversation bores me a little bit. I respect anyone who wants to talk about it, but you could tell which which direction I was favoring based on the text message that I sent you for this podcast. I could, and to further underscore my irresponsibility as a guest, I did spend literally all day today uh, thinking about the All-Star game and putting together predictions for the reserves after the starters get announced tomorrow. So I could absolutely talk about that. And it'd probably be a really thorough, educated discussion, but we're not going to do that. I've already prepped some snubs, too. I have to release snubs for starters after um, those are picked. But I don't have – if we get to it, because I have a ton. But since we're pressed for time, I'm just okay. going to get through. I'm going to use the most interesting ones. A lot of trade deadline stuff just because I feel like it's topical now since teams are already benching players in anticipation of a trade deadline that's like five weeks away at this point. Yeah. Anyway, are you ready 
coming in blind just to just to get through this. I'm not getting any readier. All right, I'm going to start with the Brooklyn Nets. Fact or fiction, the Brooklyn Nets will trade Spencer Dinwiddie. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I will say fact, and only because um, it, it doesn't seem like he's going to be back at all this year. It's it, His injury was weird. They called it like a mild ACL tear or a partial tear, which right. usually there's not that distinction. Um, that could I don't know what that means, but he's out for the year, correct? Like, yeah, they expect no... him to be out for the year with that torn right ACL. Yeah, or so it's partially torn right ACL. Part... Excuse you me, you have to say that now. No, the so just on the thinking that like this is a team that needs you know all hands on deck and then some it sacrificed all its depth to trade for James Harden and Dinwiddie cannot help them this year. So, I mean, he can't help anybody else, which is what complicates the trade. Uh, so, like, who who wants him, you know, to take dead money for this year? And then he's probably going to opt out because I believe he's entering uh, – he can enter free agency. You can correct me if he's got one more year, but I think Player option. So you're trading Player for him – unless you're giving up a bad deal, you want his bird rights is the incentive. Yeah, yeah. Which, that, that's an interesting thing that's entered the trade discussions now is, like – Oh, you want this guy's bird rights? Like people talk about that with Old Depot a little bit. It's like I don't know, dude. Does it? Really, how much does that really matter? Um, so I'll say fact, just because he can't help the Nets, and they need guys that can help them, so they're motivated to move him. Yeah. So I don't necessarily believe all of these. These are just topics that I've plucked that I find interesting. I would call this a fact too. I just think they need his salary filler because they're not going to move DeAndre Jordan, and I do think his bird rights because he's such a good offensive player will be important to some teams that maybe aren't slated to have massive cap space or wouldn't be able to appeal to him in free agency normally. The team that I think he's a great fit for, I don't know how much they value his bird rights, would be Orlando. Can you work out something um, built around? It would have to be Dinwiddie and stuff. They have Shamit and second-round picks and TLC for Aaron Gordon once he's healthy. Or maybe you don't need stuff because Aaron Gordon's injured right now. The other one I thought about is how much foresight is Memphis operating with and would Jonas Valanciunas be on the table? Cause he'd oh, be interesting, interesting for this team. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys you'd say would be interesting for the Nets or you could say, well, he could play for them. Right. Because they just, I mean, they're just thin. They just, and I don't think the buyout market is going to really be as impactful for them as, as you'd expect just because like, who's realistically going to be there. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe Andre Drummond, I don't want to jump the gun. I'm sure we'll talk about him, but uh Let's look, let's talk about him next. And we have a mailbag question that I skipped over in our last mailbag and I felt bad doing it because I get questions when we don't have mailbags in my DMs and I fully appreciate those people and I missed one during our last mailbag. So I'm going to I'm going to throw it onto you with Andre Drummond, but let's start here. Fact or fiction, Andre Drummond gets bought out, not traded. Ooh. I I feel like I'm going to say, "Oh, that's a good one to all of these." Um, no, I have a few that I know you're going to despise. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, I kind of hate this one cause it's hard. I'm going to say, I'm going to say fact, he will get bought out because, um, I just don't know, like he's got the, the cosmetic numbers, right? You know, the, whatever it is, 17 ish and 13 ish or something in that neighborhood. Um, you know, gets a bunch of steals and all that stuff, but he's shooting, this is as of a couple of days ago, like 47.4 or 48.4%. And he only shoots twos. So I'm not sure he's a major impact guy that you would give up the requisite salary to acquire. And I'm assuming you're talking about a, a team that is contending or fancies itself a contender, like a Boston or something like that. 
that that needs somebody needs a body needs a big guy in the middle that could theoretically close playoff games which maybe drummond is i don't know um but i just don't see a realistic trade for him um and so he is the type of guy that you could imagine a buyout for you know unlike griffin that blake griffin who i think is kind of linked because he's also sitting out who's got that player option for like 39 million next year that's not i mean you could i can't imagine how you arrive at a buyout number for someone like him drummond's a little bit easier i guess because he's you know just expiring this year and you know he could take half of whatever he's got left on the books to 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 take off so i I like that i like the buyout option for him it's just it's the money for me there are teams that i think would be interested in him but how do you you know compiling the money like let's use toronto as the example because they were linked to him just getting to 28 million it's it's so hard he's at 20, you don't have to get there but 28.8 million so you have to get over 20 million in salary if you're yeah. a, a normal team and like yeah there are teams like Dallas everyone links them to a big i think it's fair this season because Chris Stapps kind of sucks on defense but like you have one contract maybe you're okay getting rid of and let's say Norman Powell for Toronto that's 10.9 million like where are you coming up with the other 10 like i wouldn't give up Chris Boucher in that yeah, you give up Patrick McCaw. Yeah, you give up. Uh, they have. Do they have? No, he's not on there. But like, maybe you give up Stanley Johnson. But now you're getting into a scenario where it's four for one in the middle of the season, and it's just not going to happen. So, and I don't know that there's like a really bad contract out there that yeah, you could definitely move him if you're taking back bad money. But even if you know, let's use Dallas and say they want to get rid of Dwight Powell's money, even though he's been up and down this year, I'd say mostly bad. He's still only making eleven point one, and so it's like. Okay, Dwight Powell and James Johnson. That does work. But what what else are you giving Cleveland in that scenario? There are just so few situations like that where it seems like that could work. I expect him to get bought out. It's just the sheer volume. It's not because he's a bad player, but you can't invest that type of money in such a pure five at this time. Yeah, and to go back to the Toronto example, because they are kind of perfect for it. Like, I don't think you involved Norm Powell because I I think he probably gives the Raptors more than Drummond does. Just you know, wings for big trades are are weird. Yeah, forget the dollar amount. Um, if you lose Powell and you're the Raptors, and Kyle Lowry just went down, I think today or yesterday, um, like you're not replacing Powell. I, I just don't know where that production comes from. Um, but the other thing is, if you do start throwing like, well, here take like our five, you know, the five contracts we can throw together that we could get close to the number for Drummond. And then, like, okay, fine. Maybe one or two of those guys is a rotation guy. So now you're down a rotation player, and you got to replace those guys on the roster with minimums or whatever. And so if you're taking on Drummond, which is going to be more than you sent out, theoretically, and then you're replacing those guys, and you're a good team like Toronto or someone that theoretically would go for Drummond, now you're bumping your tax bill up. And, like, is Andre Drummond worth his salary plus whatever the tax penalties are? I just, like, I don't know, man. Like, there's just... uh, that's his his expiring deals are always great but that number is just too big to to make sense in almost every trade you put together and he probably wants to get traded so that he can go somewhere that'll have his bird rights but the reality is i just don't see it which is why the cavaliers you know i don't know how you felt about draymond green's talking points i think he used a lot of the wrong players when he's mentioning james harden and anthony davis Um, yeah the coverage of Kyrie irving has definitely been unfair at points but this past time where it's like yeah, I kind of get that maybe he needed a break, but then he shows up and he's partying with his sister. Um, those guys' careers aren't on the line. Drummond and Griffin are interesting to me just because it's like we're so far from the trade deadline. This feels more like a team-driven thing when realizing that they don't have a market 
and that's like a yeah. red, like it's just a readily existent market. So like those are the players I'd focus on. Where yeah, it's I don't know that Andre Drummond is fighting for his career right now, but it it does suck for them because he's not the type of player that has the leverage to force a trade. And while he might be amenable to sitting right now, you don't think this has to do with Cleveland wanting to play Jared Allen more, and this is yeah. this just gives them an excuse to do that without having to you know have Drummond in the rotation taking up space or you know, being angry about his playing time or hijacking possessions because he's a free agent and wants to make his money. Um, yeah, no, like you, you made me think, I'm going to throw a factor fiction Drummond related back at you because you made me think of it with the bird rights issue. Factor fiction, the team Andre Drummond goes to, however it happens, leaving the Cavs this season will not be the team he plays for next year. Cause he seems like a rental to me. I'll just say it's fiction for my end, but like, I just, I don't, I don't imagine that, a team is trading for Andre Drummond right now thinking like, oh man, we got to have the ability to to keep this guy for a market rate salary and we want his bird rights to do that. I feel like he's just a, a stopgap for somebody and then he's going to, you know, he'll just hit unrestricted free agency and sign someplace else. That that feels like the the path to me. Yeah, especially, look, maybe if he's traded, you could say that's the team he'll play for next year. But if he's bought out, I would absolutely think that he'll end up uh, with a different team in free agency. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. So the, the Drummond question we have comes from listener Ewing McDonald. Again, apologies for not getting to this on the actual mailbag pod. Andre Drummond is consistently rated as one of the best players in basketball in the defensive rating category. Any one or two years like this, and I think it's easy to dismiss as a statistically noisy outlier, but he's essentially been top 10 in the league in defensive rating since becoming a full-time starter. Defensive rating is obviously a single data point that doesn't prove anything, but I have a hard time squaring these numbers with the eye test. He usually makes the top 10 in blocks per game, but is far from what I would call a dominating rim protector, and he gets cooked every time he's in pick-and-roll coverage or switched on to perimeter guys. How would you reconcile this, Grant? Well, man, I'd say I'd say I wish I had researched this a little bit more. Number one, no, I think uh, I think he is. I'm looking at his on-off, you know, stuff over the last over, for his career right now, and um, I think that's instructive because he's got a couple of really massive negative on-court net rating swings, kind of interspersed with some decent, you know, plus five point five in fifteen sixteen, minus twelve point one in sixteen seventeen. Minus 1.5 the next year, plus 11.4 in 18-19, minus 1.5, minus 16.1. So he's all over the map. And I think what that sort of points to is that, one, yeah, all those stats are noisy. Defensive rating is especially noisy because it depends on who else is out there. Depends on opponent shooting luck. Depends on all kinds of stuff that are out of the individual player's control. And so I think generally... You just have to look deeper than certainly individual defensive rating to gauge how effective a, a, a defensive big is um, because like there's just so much more that goes into it. Think of, you know, Robin Lopez, just to kind of really get tangential, is not a good individual rebounder, but his teams always rebound better when he's on the floor. So you have to start looking at stuff that says, well, what does the team do when he's out there versus how does it look when he's not? So I don't know if that reconciles it, but like, he gets a ton of rebounds and, you know, for a stat like PER, for example, which I'm sure Drummond always rates highly in, loves defensive rebounding, loves high field goal percentages. 
that doesn't take into account the things he doesn't do, which is, you know, uh, get in good position and maybe not go for the defensive board. A lot of bigs that hort DeAndre Jordan, for example, would get out of position defensively or maybe not contest a shot that he otherwise could have because he wants defensive rebounding position. So to reconcile it, you got to look at more numbers. You got to consider context and you have to watch the games to see like what kind of player this guy is, as opposed to, well, his defensive rating is 98.4. So he's, so he's good. It just has to be, it's like anything. It's more complicated than just one number, I think. And I think you look at the Stan Van Gundy coached years in Detroit specifically, and the two things that stand out are um, he was married to certain lineup combinations, Drummond, that probably performed better defensively than a lot of if he was playing in other lineups that wouldn't have because they wanted a very specific set of personnel around him. And then two, um, excuse me, uh, is he's never been like that actual deterrent. Like he has never had great. I feel like this season, actually, the beginning with Cleveland is probably the best defense he had in front of him his entire career, maybe. But um, teams shoot better generally at the rim with him on the court. There's been a bunch of years where they take a higher percentage of their shots at the rim with him on the court, and I do think that speaks to his troubles. And then the third thing I would point out for why his defensive rating specifically um, is, you know, some of these numbers are weird. Like I'm looking at the screenshot Ewing sent me, you know, in 2017 and 2018, he was ranked first in individual defensive rating. That's just, that screams noisy to me. And also there were Detroit teams. I did not look this up, but they always seemed not always, but there were Detroit teams that even being mediocre on defense in general, it felt like they overachieved. And so I think those things sort of combine to um, one, my second point really just shows like why he's wouldn't be the great defenders. You don't use him to anchor these lineups. Like he can be part of a good defense, I just don't know that he could be the lifeblood of it. And we saw that in Detroit a bunch. And to his credit, like he didn't have guards that could stop dribble penetration while he was in Detroit, really. He also played next to some power forwards. Um, you look at Blake Griffin, who just weren't great defenders. And so that's going to sell him out even more. Um, but again, I think the lineup combinations in Detroit specifically, understand Van Gundy even more specifically, probably helped buoy his, his defensive rating. I don't know if that's an adequate explanation, but he is... He's sort of fascinating, just like the way we talked about another former Piston, Avery Bradley, and sort of his mm. on-ball defense. Like, I think team defenders, smart team defenders, just have inherently more value, even though you may not. They can't go and uh, Robert Covington isn't going to lock up some guy. But because yeah. he can provide, you know, weak side help at the rim, I'm in addition to, like, closing out well and not leaving spot-up shooters all alone forever, that's going to to help you more than someone who can – you know, sometimes they can take someone out of a game, but unless you're Ben Simmons, you're not taking a star out of a game. And Drummond's just never, he's never even been on the Embiid level where it's like, or in, go, let alone Gobert, where it's like, hey, funnel the action into the back line. Like, you don't want to do that. Uh, because he, there have been moments, he has good hands and where he seems Great like hands. he's played well in space, but it's just never been consistent either. And I'm not saying he has a low IQ, but that individual consistency when you weed out all the other problems or factors that were around him. It just never felt like it's been there for him. Yeah. I mean, just as another example, you mentioned the rim numbers. Like I think if you look at enough different years, you start to sort of like normalize some of the variables like lineup combinations and other stuff. Just five of the last six years, as I'm looking at it, opponents effective field goal percentage has been higher with him on the floor than off. Now that's all across the floor. So it's not just at the rim where maybe he's the primary defender, but even that's indicative of he's not that mobile. He's not that intuitive in help rotations, you know, that that type of thing. Um, but also just to make a broader point, and we can button this up because we're getting way into the weeds. You know, sometimes 
like Andre Drummond's been a regular starter for his whole career. So he's playing typically, you know, the, the, the first quarter, which is playing against first units. He'll play the third quarter. That's against first units. He'll play the last six minutes of the second and fourth quarter. That's against first units. So he's getting action against better competition. So that probably I means he's got better teammates too, in theory. But I mean, all those little granular things, um, that's what some of the better advanced, you know, catch all metrics are doing now is filtering out a lot of the stuff of, well, who are you playing against and who are you playing with? But, but yeah, I, I think, I don't know if anybody, like, has Drummond ever even been a serious consideration for, for an, an all defensive team? He hasn't made one. I can't remember a year where he was like even a, you know, a serious thought on that end. So no, yeah, I don't. Good numbers, just not a helpful defensive player, generally speaking. Yeah, and I thought maybe, like, could there be, like, the Roy Hibbertification of Andre Drummond here where it's if you pull him out of the paint, he just becomes, like, super useless? I don't think that he's there because if you look at some of the numbers, like, of him defending, you know, I don't know what these, like, when you look at the, you know, like, Brooke, Brooke Lopez, for example, is shooting one of seven against Andre Drummond on threes this year. That's, I don't know how much noise is in there. I didn't watch every single one of those possessions. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like he just is going to struggle against the more mobile bigs. Like if they can put the ball on the floor, forget about floor spacing, that's where his Achilles heel is going to be. And because those bigs exist in increasing frequency over the years, I would think that's probably hurt him as well. Again, I think your explanation, though, probably it does a better job of contextualizing why he ranks so high in individual defensive rating. For the that's course a good of question. Good, yeah. good question, though. Let's stick with this sort of same general topic. And so fact or fiction – Blake Griffin or Al Horford will be traded by the deadline. Mm, uh, fact, and it's it's got to be Horford. Um, I think a smart I, team, yeah, should do it. I, I think so too. I mean, you see the Boston talk because that trade exception kind of works out. I think this is the great like <laughs> misconception about about the trade exception that Boston has, which is twenty eight and a half million. Is they they're hard capped. And so right now they can only use like 19 or 21 of it unless they slough off some other salary. So it's like, Oh, Vucevic fits like, no, he doesn't because they'd have to make some moves to clear extra room for that. Um, yeah, they Horford have, fits. They look like they have 22 or I have them. So this is, okay. trust my math, 22 million in room below the apron. So yeah, I've, I've seen like three different accounts of it. So some of the Celtics guys have it at like 21 or 22.1. I saw 19. It's, 15, it's not 28 and a half. I know that. It's so they're either they're somewhere between 15 and 16 under the tax, and then they're somewhere yeah. between like 21 and 22 under the apron. I think that's fair to say. But they sure. can't use the full thing without moving other salary. Right. So so but the, the, the to get back to it, Horford like might make some sense i don't know that's like but whereas if but just just for comparison's sake if you're the celtics and it's like and it's not apples to apples because griffin makes way more and with the trade exceptions out the window but it's like of course you'd rather have al Horford than blake griffin right like even if even if the money were the same i think um well, so it's i think not... Horford makes sense on a good team griffin i don't know what griffin does for you like i i don't i don't know what his role is yeah and again unless you're getting off a worse contract which I feel Which, like what is that? Right. There are very few right now. Is you know, is Washington trading Russell Westbrook for him and what are they attaching to it? But looking at Griffin, maybe he could rest up and get to the rim more and he'll be shooting better because he was shooting threes okay at the beginning of the year. He still has that thirty nine million dollar player option. Al Horford has two more years at fifty three point five. And it's actually lower than that. It's about thirty nine million guaranteed exactly, because there's a fourteen point five million guarantee in the in that that latter season so he's just going to do more for you as a defender and a passer 
at this point, and maybe even as a floor spacer, depending on what um, Griffin's really doing. So the price point is high. It would be hysterical if he goes back to the um, Celtics after Boston, it seems, had the opportunity to get Miles Turner as part of Hayward's wow. departure. But other teams like, you know, Charlotte, fancies itself something and can use a big Dallas. I, I don't want to link Dallas to every big, but Horford can certainly play with, with Chris Dobbs and you have James Johnson and Powell right there. So can you give does, does OKC even just do that? Because Powell is so much cheaper than Horford after this year. Maybe uh, San Antonio would be interesting. Just a sw- straight up Aldridge for Horford swap. And can OKC put something small in there? Like as a sweetener. Um, and if Toronto wants to spend big on a, on a center, I know Drummond comes off the books. I'd rather see Horford there as opposed to uh, Andre Drummond. But like there are, I think you could come up with teams. I even thought about Portland for a minute where it's like, maybe I'm undervaluing a, a healthy use of Nurkic, but Horford just might be a better fit for that roster, especially considering how bad they were defensively while Nurkic was healthy this year. Yeah. I mean, and this is scary because Horford's a center and he has been a center for, for a very long time, but you know, the Sixers kind of toyed with like, in addition to him being not someone who will guard Joel Embiid anymore and also could back him up, like he played with him a little bit. And you look at it this year and Horford's shooting 39% from three on more volume than he's ever had. So offensively at least, and he's a good passer, he's a smart player. You could talk yourself into like, maybe this guy's a four. I don't know. We'd have to rejigger some weird lineup stuff around him. But I think that expands, you know, the, the, whatever, the spectrum of teams that might talk themselves into him that, you know, unless you're talking about the minimum after a buyout for Griffin, which is like, what is that buyout going to be? Um, if, if that's even possible, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't know what team says, well, Blake Griffin is is someone that, you know, we we got to have. I just, I, I just, I don't know. Buyout, if he gets there, I think there is a team that would take a flyer. I would say. Oh, yeah. So let's let's do, a, yeah, it's a minimum. Let's do factor friction on this. Blake Griffin gets bought out and ends up with the Miami Heat. <laughs> I just. I, I don't know how, like, what are the terms you agree to on a buyout? Like, I just. I think he just it, gives back $5 million and uh, Detroit should take the entire hit next year, is what they should so, do. And I almost feel like they're trying to force him into a buyout by. And maybe. I, I doubt Griffin wants to sit at this point after sitting so much last year, unless he's just so banged up and wants to get his knees right or he needs more rest. But, like, this almost feels like a tactic where it's like, hey, you're not going to be traded if we're going to move you. We're not going to move you. So if you want to go play somewhere else and actually see the court, you're going to have to agree to a buyout and give us back some money, which again would lead to Draymond's point of that kind of sucks because you know this isn't Griffin doesn't have that same level of player empowerment that other stars do. There are like, what, 20 players, let's say, that have that type of leverage, maybe 25. Yeah, no, I mean, I just think it, I'm trying to imagine it from Griffin's perspective where, they're, where the Pistons come and say, Hey, uh, you got to, cause they, I don't know who has the leverage in this situation and everybody's powerless. It feels like, cause you know, Griffin, he doesn't have market value and, and the Pistons like don't need him and don't want to play him. And like, even if he were good, that they wouldn't be interested. Um, like I just, I'm trying to imagine cause I do, I think 5 million is like, if you're Griffin and like, why am I giving up anything? you know, like anything beyond what you, a buyout situation would normally cost a player. Mm-hmm. But if I'm the Pistons, I'm like, I don't know, man. Uh, like, I'm not paying, I'm not going to just let you off the hook. I just, I don't know. It's it's a mess. It's a total mess. I really have, it's kind of the one of the most sadly kind of interesting aspects of this season now because um, I just don't see a clean resolution to it. 
I think he's going to end up in Miami on a buyout. And that, or I don't know what's going to happen with this Anthony Davis injury, but if he gets bought out, I could see a spot for him on the Lakers. But with Miami, it feels like he might have a chance to, and maybe he goes somewhere out of left field that he knows he'll be able to close with, with them just to be in the closing units. Uh, but I, I think it'll be, he'll at least have an opportunity in Miami. So that is my guess. Maybe it turns out to be a terrible one, though. Who knows? Let's see. Where are we going with this? Da, 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 da. All right. Let's settle on this because I have so many. Fact or fiction, Nikola Vucevic deserves to be an all star more than Julius Randle. Oh, well, that's fact. And I know that because I was doing this today and Vucevic does not make my all-star team in the east he was like the last guy cut and then I sort of forgot that oh yeah Julius Randle's having a crazy statistical year and I didn't actually even consider him for that last spot so just based on that I think Vuce does even though the Knicks are a better team and Randle's numbers are completely ridiculous uh but Vuce's numbers are ridiculous too and he is it is what is it possible to say that Vuce has less help than Randle does yeah, I mean, I think it's, it probably does. Look at the, the match; it just lost to Cole Anthony. Um, they Michael Carter Williams only just started play, playing again. I think Evan Fournier has been banged up. Aaron Gordon's out. Jonathan Isaac's out. Markel Fultz is out. Uh, I don't even think Aminu is in the league anymore at this point. That's a joke. I know that he is. So he has less help. I think he's probably more useful on defense. And Julius Randle shouldering a, a heavier burden as a passer, which I think matters. But Nikola Vucevic has just been one of the most valuable shooters in the league this year and i did this like relative to um value added um to the league average per shot and he graded out as one of the 10 most valuable shooters in the league just statistically that's not the perfect way to do it but uh he's shooting 43 percent on relatively high volume from three he's taken almost 50 more three-point attempts than than julius randall right now they're about the same on two-point percentage if you look at their like production uh they're both you know Vucevic, 23.7 points a game. Julius Randle, 23.1. Vucevic, 11.4 boards per game. Randle, 11. Um, Randle hasn't beat pretty handily in assists. He's getting to the free throw line more, which is just a function of he's going to face up more attack. It's close. I don't know what I would call this one. I almost feel like it should be fiction just because Julius Randle is more of a surprise, but I kind of feel like it's a fact, and Vuce might even make if I were to fill out. I think I filled out a ballot for Bleach Report a couple weeks ago, and and he was certainly on it. So this one was tough for me, and I don't have to give an answer because you're the guest. But I think <laughs> I I think I lean towards I think I lean towards fact when you just factor in the shooting and um he just does more stuff. He's better hands on defense and he can hold up as a primary rim protector more. So I was down to those last two wild card predictions for East Reserves today. And we'll throw uh Randall in there just for comparison's sake. Which and so the guys I was down to were Zach Levine, Trey Young, Vucevic. Van Vliet, Ben Simmons, and Randall. So it's six for two spots, basically. And going through it, I'll just spoil it, because who cares? I picked Trey and I picked Ben Simmons almost almost totally because the numbers are close enough with all those guys, and you can sort of pick what you like, because I just think those two are objectively the best two players. And it, like that's what it came down to. Um, but looking at it, like Levine is having an insanely efficient scoring year. It's just like absurd he's shooting like 57 percent at the rim 43 percent from deep um i mean just unbelievable like on par with you know you name it the elite elite territory but vucevic is shooting an identical percentage from deep and this is a center so it's just like okay well that's that's just completely a different type of asset to an offense than when a guard can do that and the volume is not that different and so again those aren't the two guys we're comparing but like 
yeah, Vucevic has had a phenomenal offensive season. Um, it just, yeah, the, the Magic started Gary Clark and I think James Ennis the last game I watched them. So it's just like, what what are we? And Dwayne Bacon. There were, were there were games where that, all three of them were th- starting at the same time, which is just that's right. It was harrowing, unbelievable. Let's get super specific about the trade deadline right here. Victor Oladipo will finish the season in Dallas, Memphis, or Toronto. Fact or fiction? Oh, why isn't Miami in there? But I don't want Miami to be in there. Don't they, they want his bird rights? I don't know. I think I threw that in some makeup trade. Uh, I mean, they, they have less cap space than when they were supposed to because they extended Bam at a bio, but I just don't I don't know what the pathway to Miami getting him is. Are you giving up Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero in a Victor Oladipo trade? I'm probably oh. not. Hell no. Um, give me the teams. Memphis, Toronto, and what was the third one? Or Dallas. Let's I mean, say Dallas. Um, well, it's fact I, or fiction. You could just statistically pick the oh, field. And no, I don't, go that, I don't go that way. It's fact Dallas. Uh, we're going <laughs> to pin, pin me to this forever. Um, actually, Dallas, I know you're not the only one that's going to say everybody that's available is going to end up in Dallas. Um, I feel like Oladipo was one of the, you know, when – Oh, who's Dallas's third star going to be? And you know, within the last couple of years, that's been a big conversation. Here's my question: Who's Dallas's second star? Yeah, well, that's the problem. <laughs> the guy they thought was it ain't it, or it doesn't look like it right now. Um, Oladipo was always someone that kind of made sense, or at least like the idealized version of Oladipo, like a combo guard that could defend and create a shot and just kind of up the athleticism. He's not that same guy anymore, obviously. Um, but I'm just going to say fact and go with Dallas because I actually do kind of like how that looks on the off chance Oladipo is, you know, going to get rejuvenated and whatever, show Dallas that he's worth keeping uh, via bird rights. I'm going to say fact too. I really want Memphis to trade for him just because if you were like sub in him for Dylan Brooks in the starting lineup, that team makes so much more sense. And think about Dylan Brooks getting to cook against second units a little bit more where his bruising play is probably more valuable. Um, Both Dallas, I look at Dallas and Memphis specifically need that just like second theoretical high-level shot creator. I'm not sure if Victor Oladipo can do that for long Mm. stretches now, and he's currently out with a foot injury. His right quad had flared up, too, before that. He has not played necessarily well in Houston, but I think that just means that maybe you're able to get him for a more reasonable cost because he's going to be a free agent, and Houston has no business um, paying for him, and there might be value in having his bird rights, even if you are a team like Miami or Dallas or even Memphis, that can get to cap space this summer just because there's going to be so much cash floating around out there. It almost doesn't matter. Victor Oladipo has to fall off a cliff to not get paid this summer. That money has to go somewhere. He's probably a top five free agent and is going to be top three once Drew Holiday signs an extension and people realize Kawhi is not going to consider leaving the Clippers. So there might just be um, value in having him there. And I, I don't know if Toronto or Memphis will think about being a buyer towards the trade deadline, but Man, I, w- I love the idea of Oladipo next to a healthy Oladipo anyway, next to, to John Moran. And Oladipo kind of fits the way that Memphis likes to defend, too. And you could go hyper small. Think about when Memphis is at full strength, just a lineup of Oladipo, Melton, and, and Morant, just at one, two, and three. That's something that I, I would endlessly watch. Yeah, no, that would, I mean, those are all, you know, I, I love the idea of just a bunch of athletic, like dogged defenders running around it and really brooks kind of fits that except he just fouls everything that moves you know non-stop um i, I feel like like a couple years ago i i like got on uh the soapbox and said i like dylan brooks i thought that contract he signed was really great 
And ever since then, every time I watch him, he goes like two for 13 and he's like five fouls in 17 minutes. He's he's the Norman Powell of the Western Conference. Just you're waiting for that. I get a John Starks vibe from him. Like just I just I mean, in, in terms of expectations where it's like, oh, he's good. But like he never stays that way for a while, and he's always going to yeah. be better in theory than practice. And he's always going to be on the verge, though, of like that next step. Like we've been waiting for a Norman Powell breakout for the past since like 2008, and that's obviously an exaggeration. He wasn't in the league then <laughs> when he was in junior high. Or as uh, Sharon Brown came on the podcast and said before the season that he fancy he that he's Dollar Tree Kobe with his shot selection. And so, <laughs> okay, so fact or fiction at six and ten. Since the Victor Oladipo trade, the Pacers should be panicking. Uh, fiction. And it's just because, you know, I think a, an obvious major factor is like they have two very good wing players that are not playing. You know, the Karis LeVert hasn't played TJ Warren. Uh, I don't know how much, like, did he play one game? Or did he play four before he had foot surgery? Whatever it is, like, those are, you know, Two, I don't know, you know, Turner and Sabonis and Brogdon are all very good players, but I mean, if they have those two, then you've got, I mean, that starting unit is nails. Like, I really like that starting five. Their projected just, closing lineup, which would be yeah. the same. Like, that's, it feels like, in terms of that, it, it feels like a one size fits all thing where, yeah, you need to play matchups, but their starting five with what should be their five healthy guys almost feels like, well, you could close that against almost any team in the league. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, that gives you almost, just so so much bird like what box is not checked by that team i guess you i mean warren has developed before he got hurt into like a really good wing defender from you know two years ago it was terrible um so yeah i i think it's just i'm not panicking just because of health like they still the pacers their shot profile makes sense this year after it never made sense under nate mcmillan they have significant talent i mean turner you know you you know more than anybody that Miles Turner should be a, a front runner for <laughs> defensive player of the, of the millennia. Yeah, yeah, just just build a statue of that guy blocking a shot. Uh, no, yeah, I, I'm I'm not worried. I mean, I just think it's it's a health thing, and um, I, I like a lot of the peripherals. And I, you know, they've had a bad stretch, but but I'm not I'm not concerned about it. This is our first disagreement as a podcast couple. I'm excited for okay. it. Okay, uh, I. Everything you say makes sense, and so I don't know that this is a red alarm fire here. I'm absolutely concerned. Uh, the way that they're defending right now, and look, a lot of it is there are lineups where Jeremy Lamb is playing the four, and it's a bonus at the five, or even McDermott is the four, and it's a bonus is the five. I don't understand. Looking at the lineup data, which I did before this, um, Justin Holiday because he's starting now, but even in the the lone big lineups, he sees more time at the four next to Miles Turner. And then Sabonis has McDermott and Lamb at the four when he's the lone big. And it feels like that should flip-flop just based off how those two work defensively. And they're probably being too aggressive with Sabonis' defensive coverages, or at least they're not adjusting for matchups. And something that stands out to me, and maybe I'm just on a crusade to justify the fact that I didn't predict Miles Turner to win Defensive Player of the Year. And if that is creeping into a bias, I honestly apologize because I've been higher on Miles Turner than the consensus for years. Um, yeah, me too. Uh, but apparently I overlooked him in that discussion, whatever. I still don't think he's going to win Defensive Player of the Year, and I'm, I don't know where he's going to finish on the ballot. But here's the thing. They have a top-nine defense overall, 1.11 um, 1, 1 points allowed per possession. They're surrendering against top-12 offenses, which is a span of 12 games, which is a small sample size, but also half the season, basically. Uh, 1.17 points per possession, which would be the equivalent of 29th place. So a small sample, but they've had trouble against some of the 
elite offenses. And that's, I think they haven't played two teams in this. They have not played Denver or the Lakers yet. Um, if I'm mistaken there, there's a chance that it's worse. So like, I don't know that how real the defense is. And I'm not sure that Warren, I guess Warren coming back and you no longer have to play Jeremy Lamb at the four. That's going to be huge. Even Karis Levert and Levert can be a good defender. I would say against ones and twos, he's kind of stretched against wings and, and he vacillates. So I do think there's a chance that could help. But if you think they're going to be a top 10 defense all year, that's probably something I'd push back against. And considering how that was touted, like how their you know aggressive style of defense now matters or how it was painted that it matters, I think that could end up being a fairly big deal. You're going to have to go through a lot of these offenses to uh, to do well in the playoffs, basically. And Brooklyn has not gotten any easier since the – um, they've played Brooklyn. They've only played, and the only top 12 offense they've played twice is the Pelicans. And they played fairly well against them, a uh, 107-4 defensive rating in one of those games. Oh, they played the Raptors twice too. And they actually did pretty well there. But just concerning against how they've played against the upper echelon offenses in the league to me, that coupled with their injuries, which can be a concern itself, because when does Karis LeVert yeah. come back? Does he come back? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm saying fact that they should be, they should be panicking. Why were they so much better defensively last year? Like, just I'm looking at it, they were in cleaning glass. Adam is sixth in defensive rating last season. You know, they still it was Sabonis Turner. It was you know Warren played more. I guess I just I don't know. I, I more conservative style too. I don't know if that like helped. Yeah, but it it's weird how sometimes you know like their changing shot profile shouldn't necessarily mean that like oh they're not getting back or I I didn't split out the transition defense numbers versus half court stuff but it is weird how there always seems to be some kind of trade off when you really you know switch up your 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 whole approach but yeah I don't know I, I guess some of it some of my like lack of concern is that I, I didn't come into this season thinking the Pacers were going to be really great I was more surprised by when they looked like they were very good earlier this year um, than than them kind of slipping back uh, and you know. there are encouraging harbingers when you look at miles turner shooting better from three during this stretch where they're six and ten um My- malcolm brogdon is going to shoot better i think he struggled more on his drives and um hitting pull-up three since oladipo is gone and that's actually not a surprise because it kind of felt like the same story as last season wore on having warren or lavert let alone both that'll help him out a ton so there are encouraging signs there i think most of them are on offense though and i'm not sure how much that's necessarily going to to matter Let's get back to the trade deadline. This one, okay. Fact or fiction, Zach Levine or Bradley Beal will be traded this season. Well, if Bradley Beal gets traded, it will be like the greatest smokescreen of all time because he and the Wizards have just been in lockstep saying this isn't going to happen. I'm going to go get bold and say fact and say Levine will be the one that's traded because... The Bulls are going nowhere. This is like as well as he can possibly play, and they still get outscored by like 10 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor, or their net rating is 10 points worse when he's on the court. So I just I think like the Bulls feel like a team that the, the, the last rebuild didn't work, and so now it's time to start the next one. And Levine should return a pretty good haul because his contract is very reasonable for what he is, and it's possible that if you get him on a better team – where like maybe he doesn't even have to play such a high usage offensive role and his efficiency inexplicably goes up like there's a, you know and you can hide him defensively a little bit better i think levine would have real value and so the bulls at least should think about trading him but i'm starting to believe this beal stuff where like 
they're just not going to do it. So, so I think it's fact, but it's got to be Levine. I'm with you. I'm actually disappointed that we're so in lockstep with this one. Here's the thing for me, though. So there are two ways to look at the next star available landscape following the James Harden blockbuster. One, there are only two names that fit that bill, and I think they're Beal or Levine. I don't, you know, no, you can't throw Andre Drummond in there. Victor Oladipo, that's a stretch at this point. Even if you wanted to throw Kristaps Porzingis' name in there, if you think Dallas should be shopping him, he doesn't necessarily fit that bill. So there's that. And then you look at it, to me, you could look at it through two lenses. One, now is not the time to go all in on a deal for a marquee name when the season has been subject to just so many topsy-turvy competitive landscape issues, a lot of it having to do with COVID, not to mention injuries. Or because the pool of available heavyweight players is just so bone thin, one reluctant seller is going to invariably be coaxed into giving up someone because there will be an offer that amounts to a king's ransom and a half. And Chicago seems perfectly positioned to do that. Levine has not aged himself out of the rebuild. He's in his mid-20s. And I think the bigger concern for them is I still don't know that he's of the the no-brainer max contract quality. And with him coming up on free agent in 2022, like you said, is there a chance that this is his absolute peak? Yes, you're going to get value for him now. And if you don't don't want to max him out in 2022 or in advance of that – I would look at moving him, and I do think there'll be tantalizing offers out there because there are just so few options that you have to figure at least one desperate team is going to come in over the top with something. Um, and Bradley Beal's stance with the Wizards kind of works out in that favor because, yeah, it's limiting the technically available pool of stars, but I think that only then ups what Chicago can get for Levine right now because I would hazard over the summer Bradley Beal is probably going to become available or, or at least be a hotter topic of discussion. Yeah, he's got to. It just, it's amazingly, the Wizards just don't seem like they're going to pull the trigger on it this year. I just, it's hard to find the Levine fit, though. Like, I mean, in a weird way, because he makes $19.5 million this year and next. And theoretically, like, yeah, everybody should want a guy that's 60% plus true shooting and can, you know, hand out a few. He's a serviceable passer, I think, that gets, you know, volume assists because he has the ball so much. But, like, just as a, as a pure offensive player, you know what the thing is? Here's the worry I'd have if I'm trading for Levine is that like he's actually a six man. Like what like in an it, the idealized version of him on a good team where he's not going to cost Did you just Lou you, Williams, Zach Levine right now? I that seems of, excessive. I, well, like that's my fear if I'm trading for him and I got to pay whatever this this inflated cost is going to be that we're talking about because like again, the on-off stuff we just spent, you know, however many minutes talking about how you can't just fixate on one stat but like Levine just cannot play better offensive. This is like as good as it gets for like almost anyone short of Steph Curry, James Harden, Kyrie, Durant, like all those guys. And he's still a net negative player by a huge margin. Uh, so, and it's not like the guys coming off the Bulls bench are world beaters, even though like Thad Young and Garrett Temple like have been their best players by a lot of metrics this year. Um, so I'm concerned that on a good team, like on a bad team, this is what Levine is like high 20s efficient stuff on a good team you're just not going to give him the ball this much you're not going to play him this much because he's going to get eaten up on defense and, and all this other stuff so that would be my concern if i'm if we're talking about like what it will theoretically cost to get him the two teams that interest me most are golden state i can you're not cringing so awesome and uh philly i think I'm are the blacked team. out um philly can definitely cover up for him defensively and the theory of him you know he can play with ben simmons and now all of a sudden those minutes without Embiid uh, 
they get a lot beefier, whether you're playing with Simmons and Levine or if it's Levine and Dwight Howard, um, because that's the natural. They're trying not to play Howard and Simmons together too much this season. That helps. And I think Levine is someone you could get if you include enough picks. You don't have to, you know, Ben Simmons isn't going to be on the table there. And for the Warriors, I don't know. He's not, you're not, he's not costing you James Wiseman, even though I might consider it. I'm just not as high on James Wiseman as anybody else. But he's only going to cost you either the mini pick or not if you get, again, shorting the Warriors' future at this point is not a bad idea at no. all. And so if you include yeah. enough future first rounders, um, maybe you get away with not giving either one of those primetime assets, but you're not going to have to give up more than one. And that's why it's interesting for them is it sort of allows them to hedge. I don't expect the Warriors to make a big move because I think that they're cowards, um, basically. But <laughs> uh, Philly would interest me, and I think that you can talk yourself into, you know, in a Golden State, you just need someone competently. What Levine's doing now in Chicago, if he could just do even 75% of that when Stephen Curry isn't on the floor for Golden State, how much better is Golden State in oh, that scenario? That, I mean, that's, yeah, not to go too deep on the Warriors, but, like, that's just clearly... They just have nobody that can generate anything that's not Steph. So, like, yeah, I'd say Zach Levine would be an offensive upgrade from Brad Wanamaker, who, like, tends to run second units. And, like, instead of Jeremy Lin would be an actual upgrade over Brad Wanamaker, too. I'm just throwing it out there. (laughs) Yeah. Levine's interesting. I don't know. I I hope that comes to pass because I would like to see him on a good team and see what that looks like. You have 10-ish minutes left, correct? Yes. Uh, Let's move away from the trade deadline for a second. Okay. Anthony Davis's injury will win LeBron the MVP award. Fact or fiction? Ooh. Hmm. I'm gonna say fiction because I think I don't think he needs this stretch of like of whatever he's gonna do with Davis out to hold on to his top three possible favorite status. Like I think I think LeBron will continue to do what he's doing. Like I'm gonna be the idiot that says like. I don't know if LeBron has a higher regular season gear for like three weeks than this. I just, I don't know that he's got that in him um, or that he wants to do that. So that's a tough call. That is such a good narrative thing though, because it can just imagine how it plays out where it's like he goes for 35, 10 and 10 for the whole time AD is out. Um, but I'll say fiction. I think LeBron has as good a shot as anybody at it right now. And I don't think Davis, Davis's absence is going to put him on some like, you know, put him on some crazy run that locks it up. I'm going to say fact, just because I, I kind of have a feeling Anthony Davis might be out for a while. And I'm not saying LeBron will be my MVP pick. As of right now, I'd probably go with Joel Embiid. But when you build, LeBron is going to get votes because he's doing this in his age 36 season. I don't think it's fair to view it in those terms for MVP, but there's no like clear cut criteria. And so it's, you know, you can make an argument. You're talking about plucking Steph off the Warriors. Um, look how terrible they'd be, but are we going to reward Steph because the front office doesn't know how to build a, a, a roster around him? I know they're missing Clay, but like they didn't have enough shooting around him to begin with, and then they doubled down yeah. on that with Kelly Oubre Jr., who's playing better, but it's like it's the same thing where you can't penalize Giannis last year because the Bucks roster around him was so good when he was elevating a great team. Um, LeBron has a case as of right now, and I would probably say a top three case. I think we put him second, or I put him second, you put him first when we actually did yeah. this exercise. But now that he has sort of this added value of, okay, Kawhi Leonard has started to miss games. Kevin Durant has kind of almost faded out of the MVP race at this point because he's missed games. Joel Embiid is invariably going to miss games and missed a couple with back tightness. If he's playing in these regular season games and Anthony Davis isn't in them and the, the Lakers don't you know, plunge into the depths of what third place in the West or something like, I don't know how far they could realistically fall. I think it's going to win him the MVP award because that narrative 
he's already has just the narrative machine behind him because of the age factor. And this, I do agree with the shortened off season. That's absolutely something that you could say um, and wait in the MVP discussion. I think this is going to push it over the top and he eventually wins. I don't know if he'll be my pick, but I think this is, this stretch is going to do it. Now, if Anthony Davis plays in two or three days and I look like an idiot for this, okay, fine. It's still going to be a debate, but I'm going to say fact just because he's already so close to it. Just the, the the argument he's going to have if he helps the Lakers navigate a long stretch without another top five, top seven player, that's going to do wonders for his argument. I was I was going to say the, the real fact in all this is what you said a second ago about like Davis is going to be out longer than that timeline. Like just there, there's no scenario where you mess around with this injury when the Lakers are very good and they have like a, a legit shot to win a title like this. The next three months don't matter. Forget three weeks, you know. <laughs> Let's see if we can get to a couple small smaller markets here. Minnesota, fact or fiction, Malik Beasley will finish the season on a different team. Oh, uh, well, I got to eat crow. I'll say, I'll say fiction. Um he's been really good for them. Like there's a case that he's their best player or at least most productive player this season. Um it would be Towns obviously if if his season hadn't been kind of ruined for several reasons, but um I think I, I had Beasley's deal as one of the worst of the offseason. I just thought he was like an empty calories guy. I didn't think he'd sustain the three-point shooting that he had when he came over last year, which he hasn't, but he's been phenomenal nonetheless. Um, I think he's a good wing player that defensively not great, but um, I think Minnesota actually has like a fair value deal for him now, and he's young enough to where you could envision him being – maybe he's not a starter in like the real fully realized version of the wolves down the line, but like he's a contributor. So I, they don't have a lot of those guys. So I think, I think he's probably going to stick around. I'm going to say fact because now would be the time to move him for all the reasons you just said, averaging over 20 points per game, um, shooting above 40% on his pull-up threes. And I don't know that his, maybe his deal, this is proof that it's going to age just fine, but he hasn't had to play. I mean, D'Angelo Russell and Carlton counts have played five games together since the trade. That was over a year ago at this point. So he hasn't played with the full version of the Timberwolves. And I think now is, you know, if you're married at all to Jared Culver, Anthony Edwards, um, Josh Okoge has been borderline unplayable this season. So maybe you feel better that you don't have a ton of these younger wing options. But it almost feels like an either-or situation here where it's you have to be aggressive in some form. And whether you want to rack up more picks or a young player or you want to go out there and buy, Malik Beasley feels like integral to either package because – the lack of wings available at this trade deadline, you have to think contenders are going to want someone. You know, if Zach Levine isn't gettable or the the price is too high for him, Malik Beasley's a nice substitute there. Doesn't have the same creation ceiling by any stretch, but can hit, you know, has some off-the-bounce pizzazz to his game. So I think he's going to be like that, that dark horse, highly sought-after player at the trade deadline. If you can really capitalize on his value, um, when he probably is better off on a good team at this point, and how long before Minnesota is good? How long are you waiting here? And if you keep him and that's a rotation spot, like you're essentially saying, okay, you know, one of Edwards or Culver just isn't lasting. Yeah. I mean, I'd feel better about the idea of them moving Beasley for value if Culver had shown that he's like an NBA player at this, which, which he just hasn't, you know? Um, and Okogi, you know, Okogi can, can defend, but he just like, he's, he's half of a good NBA player because he can't <laughs> score at all. So like, they just, God, it's ugly. I'm just looking at their at their wings right now. Um, it's going to be interesting. Side note for Anthony Edwards to kind of have the ball a lot more going forward. He's had he's had a couple interesting games, kind of doing some primary ball handling. So 
maybe that I don't know. I don't know. I'm just talking about the Timberwolves too much now. What's the next one? Factor fiction, Lonzo Ball will remain in New Orleans for the rest of the season. I'm going to say fiction um, and be simple about it. I think if the Pelicans were sure he was someone they valued enough to keep, that there would have been an extension signed. Um, and I, I do think that somebody is going to value, we've been talking about bird rights, someone's going to value having his match rights in restricted free agency, I think. Um, and I think it just doesn't, I don't, this is a stupid explanation, but this just, it just doesn't feel like he's someone that they see as a long-term fit because they would have locked him up. You know, they locked up Brandon Ingram, very different player, different level of player, but they, they do commit. I think we've seen when they, they have somebody that they value and, and he doesn't seem to be one of those players. Now does seem like the time to move him since he was mentioned in trade rumors. He's played 12 games. He's averaging 15.4 points, shooting 45.2% on 7.8 three point attempts per game, 4.8 assists, He's a pretty good, he's not a lockdown one-on-one defender, but he's just a good disruptive defender for someone yeah. who's going to de- guard a lot of ones and twos. Uh, but the fact of the matter is he's never put together, and I vacillated on, I, I remain a Lonzo Ball believer, but it always feels like there. it's the Jamal Murray syndrome where it's six weeks, eight weeks, but then there's this huge drop-off. And maybe you don't want, and like you said, why wouldn't you have just locked him down this season, played out, and if you want to move him over the summer, that deal probably is theoretically still movable. Um, I don't. I would probably say fact. He still finishes it in New Orleans just because he's played so well. Like, what are you going to get? Like the Lonzo Ball for Larry Marketing trade now is just. I wouldn't do that if I were New Orleans. What else are you attaching to that Chicago? If something is getting done, so it'd be interesting to see him. You know, in New York. Um, I don't think he ne- brings what Golden State needs to a T because he's shooting under thirty five percent on drives. Doesn't get to the rim. Can't run. Not that they're running a ton of pick and roll, but during the non Steph minutes. He's just not someone who could do that, but they need high IQ players, and he's certainly that. So that'd be a team yeah. I'd be interested to see him on. I honestly don't know. I'm just going to lean towards fact because he's playing so well, and what value are you going to get for this production when he's so close to restricted free agency? A sign-and-trade or signing him with the intent to trade him later feels like it might be the the more efficient route for him. Yeah, I, I just to, to put a button on that one, I, I really do think – we keep saying this, but I think he's the type of guy that needs to be on a good team because you, you said it about the Warriors – you know, Ball's strengths are not your conventional, you know, point guard. He's not a good pick and roll player. He's not a good isolation scorer. He's not the best one-on-one defender. But if you sort of think of him as, like, just to do the Warriors thing, very different player, but someone like Sean Livingston who just will make the right pass, will kind of anticipate things well, uh, can switch a little bit, can make the right decision off the ball, like all that stuff that just plays better on a good team. Cause if you're the only guy doing that on a bad team, one, you're probably going to stop making those efforts because nobody else is doing it. And two, when you do it, it doesn't matter because the other four guys or three of the other four or whatever are doing the wrong things. Like if, if Lonzo ball makes the right rotation or anticipates something and Zion Williamson is like running in circles somewhere else over here on defense and Brandon Ingram is hung up on a screen, like bug on a windshield, it doesn't matter. But on a good team, I think it makes a big difference. So I, I'd love to see what he what he could do on a on a team where like maybe he's not even a starter, but he just he gets minutes with the starters and he makes a difference. Do you have time for one more quick one? Yes. The Miami Heat. The Miami Heat's problems are more than injury slash COVID related. Can we throw in turnovers too? Because they were leading the league in turnovers. But for that's a really you know they are still they're the team they're yeah. dead last in oh. turnover percentage. But you know that's. I'm saying their problems are not due, factor fiction, their problems are not due to the availability 
of the per- solely due to the availability of the personnel they've had this season. And they've missed every team's been hit by this, but you look at the time that Butler has missed, Dragic has missed. Um, you yeah. know, they've they've played um Gabriel Vincent this season a bunch, along with other players. So I think it's easy to provide they're eight and seven with Jimmy Butler in the lineup, for whatever that matters. And I don't even think Jimmy Butler's come close to peaking um or playing up to snuff. But I'm just where do you land on that? Factor fiction. Is this availability related or is there something more sinister at play here? So let's look at their theoretically their best lineup, which is Hero, Robinson, Butler, Olenek, and Autobio. I guess reasonable minds could disagree, but that's their most used lineup. And I think that's probably their best. I don't know if you, maybe Dragic belongs in there, but, or maybe you'd like someone else in there for Olenek, but that lineup's plus 18 per hundred. Um, and they haven't played a lot together, but that's a big number. So I think certainly the Heat have issues with, like Dragic was never going to be as good as he was in the bubble last year. Um, You know, Hero, I think, like can't possibly be the guy that he was in in the playoffs because he was just a ridiculous teenager. Um, So I do think they have a couple bigger problems, but I, I don't know what the percentage is. I feel like 85% of the things that have afflicted them this year are the ones you mentioned. So I guess the answer is, is fact. There is more that's, that's uh, cause for concern with the heat than COVID, than injury, than fatigue, but like not a lot. Like I think, I, I think they're still going to be a very dangerous playoff team as long as they can keep that, that lineup and a couple other bodies healthy. I'm going to actually say it's a fact and I hate criticizing teams that have been going through this. So I'll, let's just, I'll side with you. They got to do something about like the four spot. It's just not nearly yeah. as dynamic as it was last year. Even if you want to use Jimmy Butler for some of those minutes, I think it helps that Tyler Hero's playing better, even in the times when he's basically their, their point guard, but the turnovers are a problem. And I think just looking at their front court rotation next to Bam, I don't know how playable Bam and Olenek are together in some playoff matchups. I don't know what you can get from Andre Godala for long stretches of time at at this point like you need someone more dynamic offensively who can shoot and i still don't understand why they didn't resign jay crowder i'm very much of the mind that if you if you need cap space create it later and was jay crowder on even if it was a four-year deal at the full mid-level is jay crowder not movable at that point maybe he really knew that miami was going to trade him anyway that's why he didn't go back but i think that ends up hurting them a, a ton so i don't think they're gonna come and COVID and fatigue and health issues they're all part of that I would be very surprised if they come close to even sniffing the, the peak that they had last year. They, they missed Derek Jones Jr. too because he was the, was the, head, of the, the head of the snake in that zone, and that was just a whole dimen- different dimension that they had that they could bust out and and like flip a quarter, you know, win win a quarter just all of a sudden with with that defense. So yeah, um, they, they got they that that four spot is rough. Grant, you stayed a full 60-plus seconds later than you promised me, so I'm forever grateful. If you guys are not following him on Twitter, remedy that post-haste, at GT underscore Hughes. Thanks so much for joining us, and look, you know it. I'm going to be pestering you again very soon. Thank you. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.